Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Series 6 of Scran. We're back after a short summer break and we're discussing a topic that I find very interesting. Old and rare whiskey, record-breaking amounts spent on whiskey and how the digital world is impacting the industry. The world of whiskey has been expanding into new territories in recent years. The demand for rare bottlings and casks has soared and earlier this month a new world record was made when a private collector in Asia paid £16 million for a cask of 1975 single malt from Arbeg Distillery. Whiskey has become not only something one drinks and enjoys but an investment and a trading commodity. On this week's episode of Scran I speak to Blair Bowman, whiskey consultant, broker and author about this new world of whiskey. Never one to shy away from a critical view of the industry, Blur talks us through the relatively new world of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and what this means for whiskey in general. Spoiler alert, he's not happy about it. But first, a few months back, I went along to the Distillers One of One auction, the first in a biennial series of auctions of ultra-rare one-off Scottish whiskies, held in aid of disadvantaged young people in Scotland. The auction took place in partnership with Sotheby's and I went along and spoke to a number of those involved. First up is Jonathan Driver, who was instrumental in the auction and representing the distillers who took part. My name is Jonathan Driver. I am the former master, we call it the immediate past master of the Worshipful Company of Distillers. And we are a a livery company and those are the original, they still are, the original trade guilds. They, they represent industries or they represent particular sort of sectors. So you get goldsmiths, candle makers from the old days, but you might get marketeurs or um, IT specialists today. But they're just, it's, it's like a sort of a gathering place for an industry. Today's um, Distillers One of One auction is the latest in an auction series that we began back in 2013 and then had another in 2018. Today's is different insofar as we've stepped up to probably be more on a professional footing with a partner like Sotheby's. But also, as a livery company, we we are involved with the industry and they've been more heavily involved, directly involved with the setting up of this, the provision of of lots, extraordinary individual unique lots that have been made in the most challenging times. Most of those lots in in the auction itself probably were made in the last six months, which is unheard of. 37 companies working together unheard of. I mean, we all, I mean, I love them all, but Scotch whiskey companies are not renowned for working collectively. We don't necessarily always play well together, but I mean, we played magnificently. I think that's been the whole essence of the one-on-one auction. I do believe that the last two years have changed us as a livery company when we couldn't meet or meet and do events or meet and do dinners or lunches. We focus more on education, on philanthropy. The original um, livery companies back in the 17th century would actually be looking after the people in the industry because there was no state. So just really practically, for practical reasons there, you, you looked after everyone. If they fell on hard times, you took care of them. I think the industry today has worked out that there's a new, there's almost a new phase coming where we have got to do our bit to help everybody come out of this. And I think that's a philanthropy, not just because it sounds good, but philanthropy because you actually have to. 
I asked Jonathan whether the auction had met expectations and why the industry had come together to stage this auction. We came into this, I think, just to the idea of actually running an auction would be a success in and of itself. We knew because the value of the lots were being made. I mean, we knew there's a value. Um, there's a low value, a high value. Um, and the low value would be amazing, transformational. I mean, set up a fund, you know, the Youth Action Fund. And everything else that we made over and above that would make it into a much bigger proposition or bring forward plans that we had maybe years out, bring them forward. We had no idea. We had no idea that this would be the result. You know, to go to nearly £2.5 million of money raised, and that's the hammer price goes directly to the tra- charity, so directly to charity itself. Did I know that this morning? Well, apart from being nearly sick this morning with fear, going, I don't. I think it could go another way, or something's going to go wrong, or... So I think it's oh, it succeeded everyone's expectations. And we've been working, the people who've been working with this have been working day and night. It's not just running an event. I mean, it's, it's 37 companies needing to be persuaded, coerced, then actually encouraged to deliver against what they promised to do. And they did, all of them, or give us money as well. And we set up the company. And so the most incredible amount of work by a huge number of people. So did it meet my expectations? That I, before we even started the auction itself, it had met my expectation, which was just you know, this incredible, incredible collective endeavour. I promised back when we started, and you should never do this, but I promised a million pounds because a million pounds is an evocative number and it means you're not... We, when we run our, our previous events, we did a quarter million pounds in 2013. We did £220,000 in, two, in 2018. Those are worthy numbers. Those are six-figure numbers. They transformed our livery company from raising £15,000 a year to, to substantial charitable activity because of the money. Today I walked in going, if you don't raise a million pounds, there is no failing, but that's not what you should have done because that wasn't what we said we'd do and, and that's more like a promise. Did I feel confident? I thought we had a fantastic lineup, but you know, the chasm is you've got a fantastic lineup on the left and on the right you've got the buyers. And in the middle there is this how the hell does the magic happen? And you've got telephone lines, online bidding um, you've got possible electric um, electricity outs or whatever. We raised 2.47 million. I mean, that's an amazing number. That probably, I would think that maybe our number we thought we'd make in the third, because we're going to do this every other year for the next six years. I would have thought that might be a number you feel very pleased with in year three, very pleased with in year three or, or year two. But um, to, raise, to raise it in year one, is is just simply change changes the game in terms of how fast we can move and how much we can do. I think as we reconnected with our industry, we did over the last twenty years as a livery, you know, a successive masters, and that's the person who sort of is in charge for the year. Um, just build better relations with the industry, the whole industry. We, we set up a gin guild. Um, we're bringing in people who actually still work in the industry, and um, we've always had a strong relationship with Scotch whiskey. I mean, that's the that's the powerhouse category. Scotch whiskey's got the the brands, the value. And we've run two auctions already in 13 and 18 with Scotch whiskey and just seen how successful that was. And there's a very, I mean, I work in the Scotch whiskey industry outside of the livery and that, that's where the real collectors are. That's where the real, you know, the passionate must have, you know, and, and the ultra rare collectors exist. So we figured as a livery, we could probably engage with the industry. It was a credible meeting place to do something where they could all come together and just do an enormous amount of good. If you could have bought any whiskey from today, what one would it have been? I think... The Lennon, the Ladyburn Lennon, because I said my team developed that. And when we first saw it, we just kind of went, you know, you know, sometimes you see something go, it's, it's not just, it's just a job well done. You kind of went, 
and the room went really quiet and the room everyone a bit choky but um because uh, it's just it's it's so brave it's it's not like an ordinary it's like it's like buying an art gallery you know the white packaging but the photograph is so unusual and and actually i know a lot about the book i know, know a lot about the history of lady but i mean it's you know, it existed for this terrible short 1966 to 74 so it's, it's there's an enormous it's it's sort of the essence of whiskey it, through the 60s that was the up to the 60s that's the old way of making whiskey and the 70s was the modern and it's a bridge for a tiny period of time so so it just is so if you're in the whiskey industry and you've been there for a long time it's just something massively historically important and then you put Lennon on there and say, and in the 60s, a lot of other things are going on. And you go, but not just Lennon. It's the way he's leaning back with his eyes shut. It's not, it's not a classical portrait. So it's a statement about, about, the, that, about then and about now. I think it's just, it's very evocative. So, um, and it's delicious. So um, boom, it helps. I don't think I'll be opening it though. Just a word. Do you think that a lot of people have been buying these whiskies for investment or do you think they're going to be open? Um, I can be absolutely unequivocal. They they do it for a whole variety of reasons. And, and I sell things to people. I go, that's going to go into a bank. And they go, oh, we drank one. <laughs> really? And because they, they, they do. They, I mean, I, mean I, I think all of us realise that, that whatever you make, if you open the bottle and it's no good, so everything's made for drinking. On the fundamental premise, everything's made for drinking. If you open it, they'll love it. And many of them are buying it. Have, we always say, laugh and say, a third to invest, a third to gift, and a third to drink. And uh, was there any lots today which were a bit of a surprise in terms of how much they went for? Uh, one. <laughs> um, I, think, I think our Glenfiddich lot, um, I, I spent four years trying to persuade the family to release. These are the most valuable whiskies we have. Commercially, and, and, and actually the idea of releasing four bottles of the last four casks of Glenfiddich from the 1950s for a charity auction just shows remarkable, to my mind, personally, I took a bit of a punt on that. That's a bit of a risk. And so had we done this, even though the, the auction succeeded, had the Glenfiddich failed, I would be in fairly hot water. <laughs> and so I didn't know, and I really did, genuinely did not know going in there what that would go for. And so I think that that one... I think it's changed people's perception of Glenfiddich. I think, I think from a brand and a family perspective, that will have huge implications. So if this was the stock market, would it be like, buy, buy Glenfiddich? I would, I, would be saying, I would be saying start to consider having Glenfiddich in your portfolio. But then I'm not an IFS regulated <laughs> advisor. But I would be going, oh, have a look, the 1970s. I've got some beautiful 1970s Glenfiddich. But, but, but you know, Glenfiddich's what you drink every day. No, it's not. There's another Glenfiddich back from the day when you would have that and, and, you, and you, you, can, you can collect it. It's, it's, it's a very valuable thing. So just to confirm, that went for 800... So it was four bottles, £830,000. As my... I'm, we're originally Polish, and um, my grandmother, who's dispensed wisdom, would say... But I won't even try and do a Polish grandmother accent, but um, that's a lot of steak suppers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the one way of putting it, yeah. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I also chatted to Jamie Ritchie, worldwide head of Sotheby Wines and Spirits, and asked him why he thought the auction had been so successful and what the plans for the future might be. Today was so successful because the market wants rarity, it wants quality, and it wants experiences. And we had that combination today, uh, yeah, that's what the auction was built around. 
And I think that's really where you, you, you got the demand. But ultimately, the quality, rarity, and the access to those things, plus obviously the support of charity. You know, people like to, to do these things, and when spending a lot of money, they will spend more if it's going to a good cause. So this was obviously one of the highlights of the year for us, you know, to get up and stand up in front of a, a, an audience where you've got a lot of enthusiasm in the room, you've got a lot of excitement on the telephones, and a lot of you know, bidding, uh, and, and sort of calculated bidding, if you like, uh, and you've got an active room, and you've got an engagement with people. Yeah, for us auctioneers, this is a, the joy of what we do. And uh, to see such enthusiasm, both for the charity uh, and for the, for the quality of the rarity of the whiskies offered, yeah, that's just a joy for us. And yeah, to raise that amount of money is, is an extraordinary thing, and, and to go beyond everyone's expectations, yeah, is, is truly exciting for us. I think going forward, yeah, this is this is the first. Uh, yeah, this is the first one we've done together with Distillers 101. Yeah, we look forward to 2023 where we'll build it bigger, stronger, better uh, and even more exciting. This has been a year of sort of record-breaking um, money for certain whiskies. Is that something you think is going to continue? Or are we heading into a period of, as things get to quite high-level maturity, that we're going to see more and more record-breaking figures? Yeah, I th I, look, I think the interest in, in whiskey is continuing to grow. It's continuing to grow in different regions around the world. It's continuing to grow in a younger demographic of people. I think the market will continue to uh, have very strong demand for rare, high-quality whiskies. I don't see this as a peak of the market. I don't see it really flattening out. I think we'll continue to see very strong prices going forward, so long as the you know, financial and economic markets remain the same. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Finally, I spoke to Grant Gordon, who's the chairman of the Distillers Charity. I asked him to tell me about the Youth Action Fund and how it would benefit from the auction. So in thinking about the issues that we face today, we've had the COVID pandemic and we've seen a large increase in youth unemployment. And that issue of youth unemployment, which has been exacerbated through this crisis, means that it's very, very challenging for young people who are at that stage in their life when they're finishing their education and they're going out into the, into the marketplace to find work. So the work that we've set ourselves out to do is really to think about how we can support those from disadvantaged backgrounds, those who are maybe in very difficult circumstances, maybe um, suffering from issues around trauma maybe in the home, issues around addiction maybe, but also just simply poverty and don't have the resources. So young people who are particularly challenged and facing difficulties in terms of getting onto that pathway to, to work and to employability, to be able to sort of earn their living. And, and so that's the work we've set ourselves to, to do. And in order to do that, uh, working with our partners, Inspiring Scotland, have curated a group of charities whose daily work is in the communities in Scotland, both in the central belt and regionally, where we as an industry, Scotch Whiskey, are present. And these charities, uh, Aberdeen Foyer, Enable Scotland and Street League, with the help of Alcohol Education Trust, those four charities are going to be at the front line working with those young people, those individuals, to help them on their pathway to employability. Was there any lot today that came as a bit of a surprise to you? Today was a very special day for me as chair of Distillers Charity, but also as member of the William Grant family. My father built Ladyburn Distillery. And just to see that the bottle of Ladyburn whiskey was able to raise money for a charity for the Youth Action Fund really moved me. A lot, yeah. 
And then not to mention the Glenfiddichs as well. That was that must have been quite yeah. arguably one of the high moments in the whole in the whole auction. But I think taken in the round, I think it was just it was extraordinary to see how the whole breadth of our industry, from the largest company way down to some of the newcomers, and how everybody in their own way could contribute to our common cause here, supporting communities in Scotland and young people. That made this day something quite special, and I think a day we'll remember. How can we make the most of this great opportunity we have with, uh, with our Youth Action Fund? I think it's a responsibility now on the shoulder of trustees to think about in what ways can we really make sure that those resources that are entrusted to us as, you know, in our charity, that we can make them work to help Scotland, help young people in Scotland. Uh, you know, after all, you know, no country can be great, you know, without, without people. And it's the, it's the young people who are the most important. So today was a, was a victory for young people in Scotland. This auction showed the demand that is out there for rare whiskey. I spoke to Blair Bowman about the state of the industry and some rather modern, controversial aspects of it. Today I'm joined by whiskey author and consultant Blair Bowman. I should also say friend to the podcast because you've been on a couple of times. Hi Blair. A few times. Yeah, hi. Nice to be back. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Uh, it's coming in. We're not in. We're online. <laughs> so what I've kind of noticed happening in the last sort of few months with whiskey is there's been a lot of really old whiskey, a lot of really rare whiskey and a lot of like record-breaking prices paid for whiskey. So could you just sort of explain what's kind of going on to people that don't know? Yeah, the market is in an incredibly exciting space and we're really being spoiled unlike any other time in whiskey. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate I get lots of samples of delicious, amazing whiskies and, you know, that's for kind of private clients and private casks, but also in kind of official releases, you know, distilleries are really pushing the boat out in terms of these age statements that are kind of 40, 50, you know, and older. Um, and those are becoming quite readily available, whereas even just not even going back maybe long, five, ten years ago, it just was unheard of to get whiskey that was matured for that long in cask. And still with, you know, incredible ABVs on some of these, especially from the likes of Gordon McPhail that seem to be able to do something that should be impossible, which is, you know, releasing whiskies that are over kind of 50 years old, that are still over 50% ABV, you know, in theory it shouldn't happen, but somehow there's some sort of magic or microclimate in Elgin that they're able to achieve that but is is creating this huge appetite from collectors and investors around the world who are starting to appreciate this is very exclusive very rare in the kind of same vein as kind of fine art and rare art you know these casks are very limited they may only yield a couple hundred bottles if that and that makes something very collectible very special and every time one of these bottles is opened it gets closer to extinction which you know is very unlike lots of things that we're able to consume so it's yeah, it's in a very exciting space at the moment. And is it just does it just so happen that we're at a point in time now where whiskey is just this age? Is it just sort of happened, or how is it coming about? Like how are people getting like you know eighty or year old whiskey? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It depends on the the supplier or who the distiller is, to be honest. Because a lot of the casks, you know, when they were made way back when, were destined to be a ten year old or a twelve year old or whatever the kind of official you know release statement was for them, and it's just kind of for whatever reason slipped through the net or been held for. A, for later use. I mean, a great example of this was when the, you know, the start of the Scotch Whiskey Society appeared in 1983. You know, they were able to buy these single casks that didn't have a, you know, a destiny at that point. There wasn't a market for single cask, single malt whiskey that was not a nice round number or not part of this 
that brand's core portfolio. So they were they were at that time able to tap into these amazing hidden gems of casks that were just you know not fit to be sold through that brand. So I think we're kind of at a similar phase that there's now enough understanding in the market, there's enough appetite in the market, and that the consumers are willing to spend you know north of four or five figures sometimes on these bottles. You know there's there's a, a willingness to do that for all parties now. Whereas Maybe just a few years ago, there wasn't that understanding or appreciation yet in the market. So there's quite a lot of cask schemes about just now. Um, if you were, if you had to give advice to someone who maybe has a little bit of money and wants to get into it, what would you say? Be extremely cautious. Do lots of due diligence. Look at companies' house, and basically the main message would be caveat emptor. You know, buyer beware. There are some very very dodgy individuals who are operating in this space that have proven track records of committing wine fraud or other scams in the past that are now operating in whiskey. And it is really concerning, very alarming for the industry, could create a lot of potential reputational damage for the whole sector. There is work going on behind the scenes to kind of clamp down on this. But um, yeah, just be very careful. But my main advice now is that the market's becoming so hot with these new entrants that are essentially charlatans that are trying to fleece people for a quick buck themselves because they're selling new fill casks at ridiculous amounts of money that you would need to hold on for multiple generations to make any sort of return on. You're never going to make a return on it if you're buying in it too high a price point. So, you know, my main recommendation when I get unsolicited requests from people looking to invest in whiskey is actually, you know, you'd be safer putting it in a stock market. You'd be safer buying it in shares of Diageo or Perno or, you know, whoever you want, LVMH that is on a listed stock exchange that is regulated and controlled because the nature of the cask market is it's not regulated, it's not controlled, and people can charge whatever they want. And some of the examples I've seen are is fraudulent, basically, that they're just absolutely overinflating the true price of this. And we've been through this cycle before. There was a kind of a series of scams in the early 90s of businesses doing exactly what we're seeing now, which was buying cheap young stock, you know, flipping it for enormous gains, promising ridiculous uh, returns on investment. So it's a bit of a rant here, but basically be very careful. But the main red flags I see from these businesses, and there's, there's lots of them, is if they're saying that the return on investment is 586%, that's quoted from the Knight Frank Rare Whiskey Index, which actually tracks 100 very specific bottles. So they're trying to liken a cask of new filled spirits from a random distillery to a rare bottle. You know, that's like saying this Picasso um, or this kind of Pot, pot of paint or this paintbrush would be worth something, you know, compared to a, a Picasso. It just it doesn't add up what they're trying to, you know, conflate there. So that's that thing. And then the other thing, there's a lot of misinformation around capital gains tax. They'll say that it's tax free or it's capital gains tax free. Capital gains tax is a very complicated tax. It depends on individual circumstances and, and amounts of money involved. So again, for them to say that it's capital gains tax free is misleading and false. Um, and a lot of them just don't offer uh, delivery orders, which is something I've ranted about before. But a delivery order is the kind of the contract or the certificate that shows that you own that cask in that warehouse, whereas lots of these companies will will sell you basically a sheet of paper that says, oh, we happen to own this cask on our account, but we're going to put it in your name. If that company was to you know fold, which I'm fearful a lot of them will start to just vanish, there's no way to trace back that cask to you. So sorry, that's a long answer, but my main message is be very careful because there's a lot of dodgy individuals in this space. 
No, that's, that's good advice. But to go back to the old and newer whiskies, I was lucky to be at the Distillers One of One auction, which was at the end of last year. Um, I think you were on the phone. For I time. was on the phone bidding for one of my clients, yeah, and watching it happen live on the live stream. It was very exciting just watching it live. So I'm sure being in the room would have been even more electric. It was a very exciting event. Yeah, well, it was it was it was unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like that, and I think you know the, the three bottles of Glenfiddich that went for like over eight hundred odd thousand. Was... It went on for about forty five minutes of very delayed, protracted increments, and then it just kept going and going. It wasn't wow, I can't believe it's still going. And the energy of the auctioneer to have that kind of charisma and energy to kind of keep the momentum to get to the the kind of um, final warning um, was it was very exciting to watch. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, do you so do you think things is this sort of, you know, where we are just now with, you know, auctions like that and whiskies that we've got, is there an appetite for it to kind of continue or will we get to a point where it'll just die off and, you know, things might return back to the way they were in terms of consumption? Like, are we are we in a kind of boom area um, or do you think things like this will carry on? Maybe will happen again this year or is it sort of just that's it? I think they've said for the one of one it's going to be every other year because they don't want to take away the specialness of it and I think that's important. Um, and it also gives the brands a chance to try and like, outdo each other because I think that was part of it was that there were so many of the big players involved there that they all wanted to really make a splash and wow, you know, their potential buyer with these amazing offers. You know, the conversations I had in advance of uh, the one-on-one auction with my kind of private clients were they were super excited because these were one of one, you know, that's something nobody else in the world can have. You can have it for whatever amount of money you're willing to bid on it. So I think there's definitely that appetite still and I don't see that dying away. With, I mean, there's a lot of new wealth and new money appearing in, you know, um, Latin America, in, you know, parts of Asia that maybe weren't seen as kind of big whiskey markets, like Vietnam's really taken off recently, and kind of sub-Saharan Africa. So there's these kind of new players that are coming into the space that are wanting these things. They want to kind of catch up um, in terms of building these collections and drinking these whiskies. So I think there's definitely, you know, still growth in this space. I mean, obviously, eventually we'll run out of whiskey of that age, but hopefully there's enough over the years it's been laid down to kind of keep that momentum but you know it will be interesting when we get to you know another let's say 20 30 years from now you know there's going to be a drought period because that was when you know in the 80s there were suddenly all these closures of distilleries there's not much liquid at all now from the 80s there's going to be even less in another decade's time so there could be these sudden kind of pockets where there's not much available which could become an issue to kind of sustain that but i mean we have 20 million casks in the country at any one time there's plenty of whiskey there to be sold. It's just interesting to try and figure out how much of it is, a, you know, new fill and how much is being dumped for, you know, filling today and then how much is being held for, you know, the future. So I think there's definitely still a long way to go in this space of one-on-one and ultra-rare and kind of ultra-premium. And do you see, this is a bit of a depressing question, so sorry, but so there was that dip in the 80s and a lot of places closed and it kind of went quite quiet. And then in the 90s, yeah. it wasn't really, you know, it was, was what it was and it's recently become really popular again. Do you see it kind of going through that kind of peak and trough or do you think we'll stay at a level now? Everything is cyclical and the whiskey industry is very cyclical. There's been such an expansion of new distilleries. You know, there's been such a growth of, current distilleries expanding themselves to produce more liquid and just turning up the taps. You know, my question there is, you know, is that sustainable? Is there going to be that same demand in a decade or two decades time for this amount of whiskey that we're currently filling into casks? You know, I'm not sure, you know, there's, there's currently a lot of issues around warehousing. There's not enough warehouse space to, you know, store all these casks that we're trying to fill. There's also huge demand across the industry of, you know, everybody needs casks to fill. 
and a lot of them come from Kentucky. Kentucky have had issues recently because they've not been able to get glass from China, you know, to fill their bourbon, so that we can't get the empty cask. So there's been quite a bottleneck around the world with everything going on at the moment. But I mean, I think it would be interesting to see. I think there's going to have to be a bit of a balancing out period. I think there will be in maybe a couple of years' time a bit of a kind of merger and acquisition period where some of these newer distilleries that have gained a bit of a cult following within the kind of indie kind of uh, geeky whiskey crowd might get snapped up by, you know, the bigger players who want a brand like that in their portfolio that's a bit more niche and a bit more, you know, flavor driven, a bit more kind of terroir and all that kind of stuff. If it's assuming the the founders and the owners are willing to sell, but I mean, if it's the right offer, they'd be stupid not to accept it, I guess, if they've built a strong brand. So I think there'll be a bit of that going on, a bit of consolidation maybe in a few years' time. But also I think there'll unfortunately be a few that just maybe don't make it because, you know, they've done not got the cash flow to sustain that. But I think it's already just started happening in Ireland. There's been a couple of businesses that have filed for bankruptcy. So, you know, it's sad that that happens. But, you know, running a business is tough and running a whiskey business is even harder because there's so much waiting involved and so much kind of speculating about future demand. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But yeah, I think there will be another period, unfortunately, where there is a few closures or mergers or whatever that mean that there is that consolidation. Speaking of the future, one of your uh, favourite topics, if anyone follows you on social media, <laughs> uh, non-fungible tokens. Now, I'm going to just go out there and say I don't really understand what a non-fungible token is. Um, I get a lot of information through um, for, uh, from PRs and, you know, Whiskey's Dilly's doing certain things and I've not really touched it with a 10-foot barge pole because I don't feel like I can put right about it with any authority because I don't understand it. So... What is a non-fungible token? <laughs> Try and explain it without being too biased because I will probably come across as being very biased towards them. But, you know, essentially it's a way of creating a digital token that represents, now originally it was designed to represent digital things, so digital artwork, photography, music, film, whatever, and that you could own the original digital version of that thing. So the original recording of a piece of music or that you know somebody bought the first ever tweet that was sold and this way of tracking it through a blockchain proves that you are the owner of that now there's a problem there to begin with because anyone can screenshot an image and they can have a copy of that so it's a it's a strange concept really just from the beginning what makes it even weirder and more uncomfortable for me is this proliferation of whiskey nfts that are basically trying to tie a digital token to a physical real world object like a bottle of whiskey, because it just it just doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron, is what I've tried to say. Because how can a digital thing that you can safely store and see and track everything, how can that represent something in the real world that could be lost or broken or stolen or damaged or counterfeited or whatever? If you have these two things, they just don't match up. And I just don't understand why I'm going down this route. I mean, I think it's it just doesn't make sense. I've I've described it in a recent article I wrote for Cask and Still magazine as like the emperor's new clothes of whiskey, because everybody can see that it doesn't match up, but everybody's throwing money at it, and everybody's saying, oh, look at this you know, JPEG of a bottle that I bought that may or may not represent a bottle in the real world. But there's a, the whole other angle that you know we could look on is the um, environmental side of it. It's incredibly unsustainable creating these NFTs, burning the NFTs on the blockchain. It's just a gimmick, and I just don't see how it translates to whiskey in an effective, useful way. At the moment, I think it has potential in the future. I think there's ways that it could be useful for membership or for um, like joining a club to be associated with the distillery. And you could have, you know, membership card number one 
and you could sell that to someone else and they become that member and they get access to special tastings, whatever that, I get that, that makes sense. But to try and force it upon something in the real world that is intrinsically changeable and fungible just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, yeah, I've seen the recent one with Ardbeg and they've, you know, buried a cask under peat and sort of a lot of money you can get for the NFT, which translates into a bottle. And yeah, it's, um, I'll need to do more investigation on it, I think, and try and understand. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, I, I understand the arguments for it is that basically it's designed in a way to try and help people that want to profit from whiskey and not drink whiskey. Their argument, the people that are making these, is that you know that you've bought this thing. It's been so in that example, is you know, it's an official bottling of Ardbeg. It's not an independent bottling. It's official bottling. It will be stored bizarrely in a warehouse in Singapore. I'm not sure why, um, but that's where it is. And if you want to flip that bottle for profit, you can. But rather than selling the bottle, rather than having the bottle be sent to an auction house and back to the seller and then back to an auction house, and you know, there's a lot of moving around of bottles being sold all the time at auctions. Rather than do that, leave the bottle where it is in this secure warehouse and sell your JPEG of it again and again and again and again. That's really the mechanism that these people are trying to push upon it. But for me, that's completely ridiculous because the whole point of whiskey is to drink whiskey, not to just flip it and sell it and flip it and sell it and never and never ever drink it. You know, it was made, the people that made it made it to be opened and enjoyed and shared. And that's what brings people together through the world of whiskey to flip and sell JPEGs of bottles is like the antithesis of what whiskey's about. And I just don't like it. I just really don't like it. Yeah, it's like a whole other thing, isn't it? You're either doing it for that or you're doing it for the enjoyment of the whiskey. seems to be quite split. Um, So just finally, um, if you had all the money in the world and basically you could choose any whiskey, whether or not it's still still available or not, what would you buy? That's a great question. What would I buy? Wow. Is it just a bottle? I can't buy like a distillery or a... um, is it got to be a bottle of whiskey to buy? A bottle, but then, yeah, if you have a distillery in mind, tell me that as well. I'm just thinking that. Oh, that's a really good question. And money's no object. I think it's... Oh, I'm really stunned by this question. I was, <laughs> and nothing's... There's so many... It's really hard to pin it down to just a single whiskey. But yeah, it's really hard. Well, there's, there's one whiskey then, I guess, that I could choose. It would actually be to buy a set or a bottle of the uh, 80-year-old Glenlivet. I have a friend that died recently and we shared that whiskey together and it meant a lot to me to be able to share that with him and he had a bottle in his collection and it would be nice if I could have had a bottle as well so I think that's what I would choose and it's more for that kind of the sentimentality the connection that we had through that whiskey rather than it being an expensive old the oldest whiskey in the world and I think it's more to do with that that's probably what I'd go for I think and that sums up whiskey enjoying it with good friends yeah, and the memories that that person has created in my life and that, you know, the legacy that he's left behind through his bottles, through his amazing collection, um, will always be there. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I was a part of his life for a short period of time um, through our friendship that was, it was whiskey that brought us together and we were able to, to be together and share whiskeys. So, yeah, I think that's exactly it. That's what whiskey's about. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to all my guests on this episode and thanks to you for listening. Please rate and review and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a laudable production that's hosted and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. Music